gunshots could be heard on neighboring farms as they rang out around 9.45 in the morning on February 28, 1993. The shots originated from somewhere on the Mount Carmel property on Double E Ranch Road just outside Waco, Texas. What happened during the firefight and after will be discussed deeply in the second part of our special Waco edition of Music City 911. Hey y'all, and welcome back to Music City 911. I'm your host, Brandon Hall, and I'll be doing another solo episode tonight. I'll start off with a little brief recap of our last episode to bring everybody back up to speed. So in the last episode, we learned a little bit about David Koresh and his background, that he had a bad childhood. He was primarily raised by his grandmother and attended a church with her, and then ended up bouncing from church to church for various reasons one of which was trying to date the preacher's daughter and got booted out. Ended up landing at the Branch Davidian compound in the early 80s and at one point claiming the ability to talk directly to God and that God had instructed him to procreate with the leader of the group's mother who was then in her late 60s. And of course that didn't work. He ended up getting back and forth with the leader and Koresh and his immediate followers were kicked out of the compound at gunpoint. During the time following this, when the leader of the group found that a lot of his followers still believed that what Koresh was trying to push, he issued a challenge to Koresh to essentially see who could resurrect the dead. He exhumed a body, and Koresh, after reporting it to the police, but needing proof of it, went to take pictures of the body that had been dug up along with seven of his followers, all armed. A gunfight ensued and the leader was hit but not killed. Koresh was charged with attempted murder but let off due to a mistrial. The leader was later charged with murder after he killed another member of the church and for good reason was sent to a hospital for the insane. Koresh then, after paying back taxes on the property, moved him and his crew back into the compound. Now following this and probably actually before it as well, they started doing some illegal gun repairs of sorts. They were making semi-automatic rifles into fully automatic rifles. And the ATF kind of caught on to that along with some explosive materials they were using or gathering, I guess I should say. And from that, an affidavit was signed and a warrant was issued for the rest of David Koresh and a few of the other followers that were involved in these uh, gun deals. And that led up to the initial big, huge mishap that happened on the ATF raid when they went up and were essentially outgunned. There were parties on both sides that got killed that day. So at that point, we have gotten up and we played a couple of the calls from last week uh, that were inside, mainly from one of the uh, members inside the compound named Wayne. And this time we're going to get straight into call from David Koresh himself also on 911 and uh, this one it's uh, it's a little bit more detailed as I said the last time I think that he was probably calling in somewhere around the same time that Wayne did they probably had multiple phone lines there in the house and 
uh, he was probably calling in on a different line at the time. So we'll go ahead and play that and we'll discuss a little bit afterwards and along with some stuff that happened with it. Hello. Yes. This is Dave Koresh. Uh, we're being, we're being, uh, I'm supposed to call you guys. This is who, sir? David Koresh. Mount Carmel Center. We're being shot all up out here. Okay. Where are you? Oh, where am I? I'm in Mount Carmel Center. Okay. Hang on just a second. All right. Don't hang up, David, okay? Right, I'm gonna get somebody to talk to you. Are you in the complex? You've sent law enforcement out here before. Yes, sir. And I've stayed on the straight across the table. 
I said, if you want to know about me, sit down with me, and I'll open up a book and show you seven things. Just like I told Robert. You know Robert, don't you? Yes, sir. You know, the guy that, your agent. Yes, sir. Yeah, we've known about this. I've been teaching this for four years. Okay. We, we, we knew you were coming and everything. You see, yes, we knew before you even knew. Well, yeah, I, There's I, a spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus Christ is a light that shines in a dark place. Now, you need to learn Deuteronomy 32. Okay. But let me ask you this. Let's the present situation, let's start resolving it, and then we can sit down and talk. Right now, we've got everybody ceasefiring, okay? So that's what we want. Now, we're pulling the guy back from the door. ATF is going to pull the guy back from the door. All right. Can they come now, David, with your guarantee and pick up their injured officer without being fired on? Look, I cannot communicate with everybody here. Okay. Do you have any any way, is there anybody that can? Do you have a facility to to uh, communicate with the rest of the folks there in your, in your house? Well, we would have if y'all guys had talked with us. Okay. But right now, all right, what ATF is wanting to do is, is to take their injured troop out of your area, okay? But what you're telling me is you can't control folks because of the, you have no communications. Is that correct? Well, if you give us some time, we could probably get the message around. Okay. Would you start? How many individuals are you planning on sending to take the wounded away? Right. Stand by. How many troops are going to remove that injured ATF agent? Uh -huh. He's on the other line. Uh -huh. So what 
I want to do. He wants to know which side of the building they're going to come in. We're sending in four ATF agents. Hello? Hello? I'm here. Okay, good. Uh, we're sending in four ATF agents, okay? Mm -hmm. So, and then let me give Wayne some instructions because evidently he is there closer to the, the injured person. Then I would like to work with you, and I understand from visiting with Wayne injured folks, we'd like to take care of them for you, okay? No, oh, they're not injured that bad. Oh, well, it, okay, I, I, I misunderstood. They don't, they, don't, they don't want you to take care of okay. them. Okay, okay, then we'll, we'll, we'll move on to something else. Let me get with Wayne. I need you to hold one second, okay? Well, just a moment. Okay. Anybody I need to mediate the medical 
No, we don't. Okay. Then, what I'm trying to do is, uh, Wayne is evidently close to the downed ATF officer. So what he wants to know is which side they're coming in. I've already told him how many are coming. So I'm trying to get them, that man, removed from the field of fire. Then we can start some negotiations, okay? We can start talking about this, and I, I know some things. Okay, so keep on communicating with Wayne on that, then. I, I will. All right, can you hold on to this line? If, yes. All right, if I lose you, okay. are you at 744-2770? Is that your mobile number? Uh, let's see. Just a moment. Here he is. Here's David. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me. I've got Wayne now. We're we're trying to get that coordinated. And the the thing, the sticking point now is getting uh, uh, the injured officer out of there. Then we'll start, you know, trying to talk to y'all. Why didn't you try to talk at first? Okay. I, that. See, you got me in a. a you, you, you put me in charge of somebody that I'm going to be dealing with later. Put me in charge of the man that's organized this. Okay. That's what I'm trying to do. I know you guys are very foolish. What? That's what I'm trying. You don't to know what we have. You don't know what we've no. shot. All I'm doing is. And you, and you end up like this ATF, ETF, you guys, you're going to get a big butt whoop. Okay. And you, you need to call the President okay. of the United States and explain to him what you've done. Yes, sir. You ruined this country. You All ruined right. the nation. This is a democracy, supposedly Republican. Right. Okay, stand by and let me get with Wayne, and then we'll be able to do more talking. So, keep, can you stay on the line? Oh, my battery's getting weak, so. Okay. All right. Um, I've got your number. I can call you back. I want to establish a link with you and some folks at ATF, okay? Okay. All right. All right. Stand by. Just a minute. Let me see if I can do that. Stand by. So as we heard there, David was calling at the same time as Wayne. They were both on the same phone or both on the phone at the same time. And it sounded like David there, there, they had a, a cell phone that they were using towards the end of the call. They said something about their battery about to go dead. And it may have been one of the reasons that they kept getting disconnected so many times. I mean, this was in the early nineties. Cell phones were not that great back then. There weren't that many cell phone towers and out there, there's probably even fewer of them. But when he gets on the phone with Lynch, finally, you know, and Lynch says, who is this? He says, David Koresh. And then he has to say the notorious. Now, I guess he's kind of labeling himself that way. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, maybe that news article that they had in the newspaper said something about that with him. I'm not sure where he got that from, but uh, you know, he could have just could have been a self label. You never knew to, do know. But you know, if you really look into or listen to the call itself, what he's saying, he starts asking, "What did y'all do that for?" Well, first off, there's no y'all in it. From every account that I've read, the sheriff's department did not know that this was going down, and didn't especially didn't know it was going down that day so there's no no y'all to it it was all the atf but he's still using kind of a broad general stroke about the government i guess I, I, that's what i imagine anyway he also moved into saying that y'all killed some of my children well i don't think he meant children in the actual sense i think that he was calling his followers his children so he was taking kind of almost like an even further role past what it is, uh, what he is actually almost like maybe a, a godlike role that maybe he thought he was in. But even with that, the initial call from Koresh, he talked about the seven seals in the Bible. He kept on harping on that, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And Lynch with his negotiating skills, this was a good one. It's, it's something that's not really 
if you didn't know the negotiating end of, of things, if you hadn't been through a negotiator's class, anything like that, what he did was very good. He kept the focus on what was at hand. He didn't want Koresh to wander off and start talking about, you know, all this, the, the Bible stuff that he was getting into. He said later on, we can have a discussion about that if you want to. But right now, we need to talk about what's going on right now. He did let David talk out and everything. But with that, you know, one of the, one of the things with David is he kept talking about it. Lynch didn't interrupt him. That's also another point. You're not really supposed to interrupt people when you're doing this, this type of negotiation. Let them talk out a little bit. If it gets too far, yeah, you're going to have to interrupt. But his little... They were kind of short spouts of, you know, biblical knowledge that he was trying to impart with the, the sheriff's deputy there. But the biggest thing is he did keep the, the focus on the ceasefire. And then later on, he was, you know, still trying to negotiate the removal of the ATF agent. The phone did keep hanging up. And uh, you heard there that there was a lot of calling back with uh, with them and. I don't know if uh, the lieutenant is just not that familiar with the, the phone system itself. He didn't know if he had to dial nine or not to get out on that line. But, you know, that's that's still kind of a maybe a newer thing for phone systems back then, too. But they ended up just having all kinds of trouble with the phone lines. I, I think it was probably still, like I said before, the cell phone on uh, Koresh's end. Steve did get on the the phone, too, a couple times. He was He was on the show, too. Um, you heard him, he was, um, if I'm, I'm trying to recall off the top of my head what his role was on the show and just in general there, but I, am pretty sure that he was the right hand man of, uh, man of David Koresh himself. He was the one who's, I believe it was his wife on the show ended up having to marry Koresh and then got pregnant with his baby. But, you know, he pretty quickly handed the, the phone back off to Koresh and let him continue talking. They did offer some assistance with the injured branch Davidians as well. They said they weren't that harmed, but they, I know they had at least a couple of people that were inside that were killed and some that were beyond injured, uh, as far as just simple injuries, like they were trying to make out the one thing that the show did get likely right was, I believe it was one of the dads of the members that got shot in the stomach. And, you know, he was, uh, it was a, if it wouldn't have got to a hospital, he, he would have died anyway. And they likely did almost like a ritual type suicide with him. That way he would not have to suffer anymore. So that is another aspect that they probably got right on the show. Getting back to the negotiation end of it though. One of the things you have to listen to in, in the call is, he was very specific about his request, about his uh, statements that he was making to Koresh. They were going to have four ATF agents coming in, exactly four. He was given what type of uniform and what color they were going to be wearing. At one point, he, I think Koresh asked if they were going to be armed. I don't know if they actually talked about that or not, but they were trying to organize something back and forth between Koresh and Wayne, who was closer to the injured officer. So they did manage to work out some sort of a temporary ceasefire. And from there, they managed to get the injured officer out. After the shootout, the death hole had been tallied. Four ATF agents had been killed and 16 injured. 
Five Branch Davidians were also dead, two of which were killed by their own people after being badly wounded. The ceasefire was agreed upon and started at approximately 11.30 that morning. During the time following the agreement, plans were made to remove the ATF's dead and injured from inside the compound, so that actually did work. All that worked. About six hours later, three of the Branch Davidians who were out of the house during the raid tried to sneak back in. One of them was Michael Schroeder. After reports that he fired on agents with a handgun, he was also shot and killed. So moving on to some of the more theories about this whole situation, who pulled the trigger first? The ATF claimed that they were hearing shots being fired on before the convoy even stopped. Branch Davidians claim ATF took the first shots. Other theories were that a negligent discharge on one side or the other caused one or both sides to start shooting. Another possibility, one echoed by the TV show, was that the ATF had a dog team or a team of agents who specifically their duty was to approach uh, at, at first, on their first approach, was to go straight in and kill uh, their dogs, regardless if the dogs were vicious or not. One thought that might be the correct one is that the Davidians actually wanted to die from the start. This would have been part of their plan all along, that an outside and evil force would come and try to kill them. So they, the Davidians, could have started firing first just to get the whole thing started. It's just a theory. seems to be shared by several people, just like actually all of these. This, of course, leads into a 51-day standoff, during which time the FBI took over operations on the scene, brought in their own people, their own hostage rescue team, and their negotiators. Negotiations were started, and through the 51-day standoff, negotiators made and received a total of 754 calls attempting closure to the incident. During this time, they encouraged Crest to turn himself in as well as trying to initiate the release of the rest of the people inside. Keep in mind, this was not treated completely as a hostage situation, though. Far from it, really. The people inside wanted to be there. They felt this was part of what Crest was preaching. But through various tactics, the negotiators managed the release of 35 people, 21 of which were children. Negotiations were a lot of times filled with Caress still trying to push his message. He continually had to be guided back onto what was happening at the moment. Now, as a 911 dispatcher, I talk to people with mental problems literally every single day. Just because they're crazy or have some sort of mental issue doesn't mean they don't need the police. A lot of times they don't. They just need an audience to hear what they are saying sometimes. And from listening to Koresh on some of this stuff, it makes me feel like, you know, talking to one of the callers at work. They're aware of what's going on. They just don't have that whatever they have going on as the utmost important thing happening to them. In the case of Koresh, it was apocalyptic visions. Since we've been talking about the negotiator end of it, we're going to move on to the next call here. And this is going to be from one of the negotiators calling in and actually talking to Koresh himself. Now, this call is a little bit long. I'll probably cut down a little bit of it just for time's sake and everything because there's a lot of stuff they just kind of keep going over and over again. But uh, I'll make sure that the more important parts get put into it. I'm saying that when I get through writing these and they're given to my attorney, mm -hmm. and my attorney hands them over, what's the two uh, theologians' name? Uh, Philip Arnold. Philip Arnold Tabor. and Jim Tabor, because you've shown that they have a sincere interest in these things, mm -hmm. you see. Man, I can spend all my time in jail, and people can go in and ask me all the stupid questions, because they they're not going to ask me about the seals. They're going to say, uh, uh, 
do you molest young ladies? Uh, have you eaten babies? Uh, do you sacrifice people? Uh, do you make automatic weapons? Uh, do you have bombs? That's what they're going to be interested in. Okay, so that's, your, that's why you need to get it done before you leave there, then. That's why okay. I'm going to complete it. Because, you see, you know as well as I do that people in this world, they want something dramatic and sensational. They don't want to have to sit. No one's going to sit there and let me sit there in front of a camera and read Psalms 40 to them to prove the first seal. Nick, it's a real world, and that's why I'm sympathetic with your position. I realize you're frustrated, and I agree with you. I'm not frustrated. I went home, and uh, I'm, I'm back. I'm no longer frustrated. I never was frustrated. Did you take a shower for me? Well, yeah, I took a couple of them for Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now listen, let's get back to the point at hand that this, uh, you know, the writing of the seals, okay, you've got to do that from in there and it's going to take you X amount of time, but just tell me this, David, are you saying that when you finish that manuscript... Then I'm not bound any longer. No, but, but see, that doesn't answer the question. Then I'll be out, yes, definitely. <clears throat> I know you'll be out, but that could... I couldn't, excuse me, I've got a cold. That could mean a lot of things, David. That could mean... I'll be in custody, in the jailhouse. You can come down there and feed me banana. No, I know. I know at some point in time that's true, but I'm, I'm getting from you. I'm asking you that when that is finished, are you then telling me that you are coming out the next day or two hours after you send that out? Well, I'll probably, when I, when I bring it out, see, my attorney... <clears throat> is going to get the get to the copy. Right. Okay? And as soon as he hands it over to the scholars, the theologians, mm -hmm. right, that's when he's going to come back, and that's when I'm going to go out with him, because he said point blank that, you know, one of the guarantees of me arriving down there is that he's going to go with me. You can go on paper here and said that David Koresh told me that as soon as he finishes this manuscript, the seven seals, of which you finished the first chapter dealing with the first seal, the seal right. that you're going to make that available. I'll be splitting out of this place. I'm so sick of MREs, Dick. That, uh, well, I just want to make sure that I have this right, that you're coming out as soon as that's finished. That's what it was said by, well, I know. by the attorney. That's I know. what I'm saying. Okay. It's, it's clarified. Lock, stock, and barrel it. I mean, I've heard you say that you're coming out after, but that is not specific. You know, that's a game that we all it's, can play. Look, I know, Dick. But I'm asking you for your word. You really say that you're coming good. out as soon as that's done, and you <sighs> gave up the manuscript to DeGarren, who's going to make copies available for Arnold and uh, the other the other fellow, right. the other biblical scholar, and then you are coming out I'm with out that manuscript. He's, he's going to come, and the way the procession is to be, I'm to go out first with him, and then I think you're last, right, Steve? With his attorney. Okay. And the other people, the other people in between. And then you know what? I'm keeping you from getting back to work. So I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let you go so that you can get back to work because, David, frankly, I'm eagerly awaiting this manuscript. And well, I tell you what, it's going to blow your socks off. Well, I'm I'm perfectly willing to, to read it, and I'm looking forward to it. as uh, David, hate me or love me then. Well... I want to read it, and then I'll, I'll you know, make a decision then, and uh, we'll see how it goes. In the meantime, uh, you know, let's, let's get that thing written. The first chapter of David's manuscript that had been completed was carried out of the burning building on April the 19th by his secretary and stenographer, Ruth Riddle. It was on a computer disk. This disk was subsequently turned over to David's attorney, Dick DeGarren, and according to David's instructions, DeGarren passed it on to James Tabor and Philip Arnold. It's now published in the appendix 
to a recent book, Why Waco is the title, Cults and the Battle for Religious Freedom in America. It also, the book contains a commentary by Drs. Arnold and Tabor on the manuscript. This next segment of the tape is indeed the last recorded words or conversation of David Koresh. It was recorded on April the 18th, Sunday, the day before the fire at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Koresh called the FBI negotiators. He's quite upset and angry because they've begun to remove cars and clear the area in the front of the building. First of all, he's upset that evidence might be destroyed that would relate to what had happened on February 28th in the initial BATF raid on Mount Carmel. Secondly, he's concerned about property damage in general, and it's clear from the tone of his voice that he suspects that something might be up and that indeed the agreement that he feels he's reached with the FBI to write the manuscript and then exit peacefully uh, could fall apart and not be carried out. Okay. Uh, is this, is this, this Henry? Oh, Henry, this is Dave. Hi, Dave. Look, the... Uh, the generals out here, right? You have a hard time controlling them, right? I don't control them, no. Okay. Well, look, we have done everything we can to be able to communicate in a nice, passionate way. We've, uh, you know, told you what our work with God is. And, uh, you know, we've been kind. We've not been your everyday kind of cult. We've not been your everyday kind of terrorist, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with having to deal with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that the FBI or these uh, generals are doing is just kind of way beyond the scope of reason. And they're not only uh, destroying private property, they're also removing evidences. And this doesn't seem like that uh, these, are, these are moves that should be made by a government who says to a people that we're going to be able to take this up in a court of law. I mean, they're not, they're not going to be able to replace a lot of things here. Like that 68 SS uh, El Camino that belonged to Paul Fanta. Mm-hmm. They'll never be able to replace that. They don't have any more of those. And uh, the 68 Camaro and other things out here in the front, mm-hmm. they can't replace that. They just can't replace it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they keep they keep doing these kind of things. It's just proving to us that, that they're not they're not showing good faith in their part. And I just I just suggest they shouldn't do it. I understand what you're saying, um, but, and I will impart that. Uh, in all courtesies, please please impart that because because it's coming to the point to where uh, you know God in heaven has somewhat to do also. And it's just really coming to the point of really, what what do you men really want? I think what, you know, just in this sense, I'm just imparting to you what my perception is. And my perception is that, that what they want is they want you and everybody to come out. You know, I, I don't think so. I think what they're showing is they don't want that. Well, I think that that's exactly what they want. No, they're not going to the get that. They're not going to get that by what they're doing right now. They're going to get exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. They're going to get wrath on certain people. They're going to get anger from certain guys. Now, I can't control everybody here. I think you can. No, I can't. you got to understand, John, 
Henry. Henry, I'm sorry. In 1985, I presented a truth. And everybody's here. I had to debate, and I had to talk to, and I had to show from scriptures. I had to prove my point for many hours, days, months, and sometimes years with certain people here. <coughs> they went to scholars. They went to theologians. I have a very unique group here. Yes, you do. Not ignorant people, not stupid people. Now, there's some people that in the beginning, they went out like Kevin and Brad, individuals that were, you know, people that were out there, bar rollers and stuff like that. Rough and tough guys. Now they're not they're not the theologians of the world, but they're guys that need a lot of patience and you know, with a little bit of refinement, a little bit of uh, proof to them, they can they can be good people. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I would really, in all honesty and in good faith, tell these generals to uh, to, to to back up. They don't need to tear up any more of this property. You tell us out of one side of the mouth, we're going to be able to come back here and all this, and uh, you know. We're going to take this up in court, and on the other hand, you're showing us that there's not going to be nothing to come back to. I think the problem on this thing, uh, David, is that this thing has lasted way too long. Oh, it, it, it has. It should have never gotten started this way, and that was right. not our fault. Okay. Now, but you don't wish to speak of the issues of the beginning of this. Uh, no, I don't. And, and uh, you know, what the issues were, you know, at that time is something else. The problem is not what the issues were at that time. The problem is this has lasted way too long. I'm going to finish my book. Or I'm not going to finish my book. I hope that you do. Well, let me tell you this. These men, who every day we try to show them good faith, they've walked out in front of us, they've driven their tanks up to us, they've busted us out of a building a little bit one time. You said that was a, a mistake. It was not in your control. It wasn't in the commander's wishes. Now, all of this has been showing us that these guys want to fight. Now, I don't want to fight. I, I want, I'm alive, too, and there's a lot of people in here that are alive. There's children in here. That's right. And we're also Americans, and I think, I think that America has a patronage, a very clear patronage of individual citizens who, 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 who have a breaking point. Well, that's and if the true. government has gotten this strong, we can come on to something that we have worked for hard. We worked hard when we got on this property. A lot of hard hours. This place was a dump. We fixed it up. We built this little house here. It's not extravagant. You know, there's a lot of people here with a high commission and a lot of love and concern, not just for our own lives, but for everybody's lives. And if this is the way our government is showing the world that its tactics are to get someone to to, 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 to do as they wish, when and, and realistically, our, our rights have been infringed upon right and left. But there's a way to resolve that, David. Yes. The way to resolve that yes. is being your way. Your way is you're going to keep destroying our property. This, this probably would not have had to happen. It never did have to happen. That's right. And and then, you know, if you had come out on on the day that you indicated that you promised that you were going to come out, none of this would have taken place. You denounce the fact that I have a God that communicates with me. That's the first, that's the first mistake that we, that nobody, we make. Nobody, nobody is saying anything Listen. about your religious beliefs, your thoughts, your but ideas, you are, or anything you are, like you, that. You are saying... The same things that you can do there, you could do out, out here. That's what There's you say. Thing. I think that you are lying. As a matter of fact, I know that in the first month or so that I'm out, I'm going to be bombarded 
all the time with nothing but people wanting to know questions, asking this, asking that. And if you were working on the seven seals, I mean, we, nobody would buy it. I mean, why would why would you why would that have to happen? I have my responsibility also. You come on, look at the realities of things. And the reality of things is that there are priorities, and your okay, priority, you and your priority. priority should be in the safety of the children, All right. the safety of the, the women. You are fixing to ruin that. Everybody. These commanders are fixing to ruin the safety of my and my children, my life, the lives of my wives, the lives of my friends, my family. You're fixing to step across the ribbon. I think that that was something that you brought on. It has nothing to do with the All right, if I brought on, if, if, this is, if this is the corner of the box you placed me into. I think that you're placing yourself in that. No, no you're the one moving forward. You're the one to you. who has violated, your generals have violated our constitutional rights. You have made us guilty before proving so. You actually brought so. a band of, of, of people who didn't announce themselves. They came, I was out the front door. I was willing to talk to them. They uh -huh. shot at me first. See, now you're talking about you talking about, about something you don't want to prove as a matter of a fact. You're telling me now. You now you tell me I'm under arrest. I have to come out well, and I have somebody to is under arrest. That doesn't mean that it, that you've already been proven guilty. It just means no. I'm being charged. punished. We've already been punished. We've been placed in jail. We're being punished as guilty. Well, that is something that you chose for everybody in there. That is not correct. That is something you sure. chose as a because confinement. Because if you had walked out on that day as you promised, by now, who knows where we would have been. You know, you probably would be out on bail for goodness sake. John, all I can say is, is that if you want to, to, to place this in the history books as one of the saddest days in the world, well, I think that the, that the rules for your safety still apply. There's no reason, you know, to, okay. to think that, that they should apply. I understand apply. your rules. I'm just simply asking you in all good faith and all good manner that you tell the general that it's enough to tear up our property. I will tell them exactly what you said, but you need to understand that um, I'm talking up. It's not, you know, talking down. So, you know, what I suggest and what I will suggest is exactly what you said. I've suggested that and I've suggested other things. I have no no problem in, uh, you know, for You tell them we love them. We love them. And, you know. And you're willing to send out 30 people. Look, 50. whoever wants to go out. No, no, no. no. Don't, tell me, don't tell me that. Tell me that you're sending somebody out. I'm not going to. You don't see, you don't understand about these people yet. And you don't understand about the people here yet either. Okay, well, if this is the way we want to play, then we come I'm to a point where... I'm not wanting to where, play anything. Look, it, you are playing. No, I'm Everyone in the tank something up there is playing. No, nobody is. People just want to see some progress. Look, some progress is being made. You don't realize what kind of progress is being made. There are people all over this world who are going to benefit from this book of the Seven Seals. You don't seem to understand. And what you don't seem to understand is is that the people here want to see that kind of progress, but other kind of progress. There's no reason why you couldn't be doing the same very thing that you're doing now within the it's place. not true. What you're saying is not based why on the truth. And that's where the tape that I have cut off. It was, you could hear in the the middle of it, that the negotiator was commentating on his, this was just a, a tape that they made as I, I believe probably part of one of their reports they had with it. 
you could hear the uh, frustration of the negotiator. And uh, just keep in mind that they have had more than 700 calls back and forth between them with very little to indicate that anything was going to be ending anytime soon. The only other time that Koresh had made any type of agreement to end it, they still ended up staying inside. Everyone, it seemed, wanted this to be over and done with, aside from maybe Koresh. And moving on to the final siege by the FBI, more approval had to be gained to, to start it up. A very detailed report, and by the way, these reports are all available online. I encourage every one of you to go out and read them because there's a lot to it. There's so much more detail than I can provide on this show that is in that. I mean, they have specific timelines of what happened, details about every little thing, their their reason they, they did the things they did. It's it, There's a lot of information in it, and I'm just really, you know, tip of the iceberg type thing on this show. I'm trying to give some more stuff that most places have not put out, you know, in the, I guess, you know, I'll hesitate to say the mainstream media, but it was just never really put out. The reports, including uh, accounts from former Davidians as well as transcripts from, from the negotiator calls, they were uh, presented as part of the FBI's push to Attorney General Janet Reno to do something to end this other than negotiation. Child abuse was presented as one of the issues there, but only using historical data along with some of the statements made during talks inside, not necessarily saying that there was continued child abuse inside during the standoff. Other instances reported were the same weapons violations by the ATF, statements from a child protective services worker who, during the interview with a girl from the compound, stated that when left in the hotel room uh, with Koresh, you know, when she was left there by her mother, he had her get into bed with him, then various sexual acts happened afterwards. The girl at the time was 10 years old. Also, accusations of physical abuse were made. All of this was circumstantial. No physical proof of it was available, but with so many people stating so many things, well, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, you know what I mean. But with that, enough info was given to gain approval from the Attorney General, who ran it through President Clinton as well. A lot of people blame Janet Reno for this tragedy. She did give approval, but uh, just like a lot of people have likely heard in the movie, shit does run downhill. The evidence was provided by people from under her, so uh, I'm not necessarily saying anyone is to blame, but as we'll see about talking about what happened during the final day, you may form your own opinions. Various ways were used to introduce CS gas into the compound. The reasoning for this was that they could remove people from inside without causing them any type of lethal harm. The plan originally was to increase the amount of gas over the course of two days if they didn't immediately remove themselves from inside. Referring back to the TV series, the FBI did make announcements over loudspeakers stating this was not an assault and asking people inside to not fire on their people or equipment. They did have permission to return fire if fired upon. The FBI reported that that they never fired a shot on April 19th, even though some of the branch civilians from inside did fire. The problem the FBI ran into was that after several hours of gas, none of the the people inside left the building. Most of the people inside moved an underground bunker that helped shield the gas. Others remaining in other parts of the building wore gas masks. Around noon, being broadcast live on TV, fires broke out in three separate areas of the building. 
there, of course, are controversies related to the, who actually started the fires. The official report stated that the Davidians started the fires themselves. Fires were reported by observers that it started at 12.07 and 41 seconds, 12.08 and 49 seconds, and 12.09 and 45 seconds. Roughly one minute between each fire starting. And as stated and directly quoted from the report, and this is actually from the report itself, given the short lapse of time and the distance between the three separate points of origin, the arson team concluded that the fire could not have been caused at a single point of origin or by accident. And past that, because of the building being very poorly constructed and now vented due to the, the holes in the walls, the place went up pretty quickly. But to add, also from the report, an arson dog had alerted on the presence of chemical accelerants at numerous points in the compound, including the points of the fire origin. This was after the fact. In addition to this, samples of the victim's clothes were given to a lab for analysis, and many had kerosene on their clothing. With the use of camp stoves and lamps, this could be justified, but many also had gasoline, charcoal lighter fluid, and a couple other flammable items. To me, anyway it looks more like they had set the fires intentionally. Some of those that escaped maintain that the fires were either caused intentionally or accidentally by the FBI. Special measures were taken to try and ensure no ignition of the gas were to happen. Carbon dioxide was used as a propellant in one of the ways they did it, and this was stated to have potential, or actually even potentially be a fire inhibitor if the fires were intentionally set, meant to burn the folks out, whatever, however you want to put it, they could have been set a whole lot earlier. Gas was used there for six hours. At any point in the 51-day standoff, they could have just set fire to the place. They didn't. Of the people inside when the fire started, only nine left the building. In all, 76 people died inside on April 19, 1993. In an independent investigation by the University of Maryland and their Department of Fire Protection and Engineering, they concluded that residents inside the compound had sufficient time to escape the fire if they had so desired. Autopsies of those revealed various causes of death. Some died of being crushed by debris, some by smoke inhalation, but the things that give me pause in any of that was not widely reported, if at all, by any of the media outlets. That was that uh, at least 20 Davidians were shot. Most disturbing that five of those were children. One of those five was a three-year-old that was found to have been stabbed in the chest. These could have been done for a number of reasons, such as mercy killings, general suicide, or consensual execution, but also possible forced execution. Reports of the Jim Jones incident, for y'all that have heard about it, stated that those that wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid were killed in other ways, forcibly. David Koresh was killed by a gunshot wound to the head, seemingly ritual suicide by his top guy, Steve, who we heard on a couple of the calls we'll listen to, who directly after that shot himself. With all this in mind, the chances of the people being denied escape was a real possibility. The Texas Rangers assumed the duty of investigation after the fires. During the article search, they recovered 305 firearms and around 1.9 million, 1.9 million cooked off or spent rounds of ammunition. Cooked off being that the rounds went off due to the fire. To give you an idea of how much this is, the ammo was kept in the down in the bunker. 
when the authorities finally made entry, the cooked-off shells were three feet deep. There was so much of it, it had to be removed with shovels. Twenty of the guns were fully automatic AKs, twelve fully automatic ARs. They had two fifty caliber semi-auto rifles and anti-tank armor-piercing ammo. They also turned up hundreds of exploded shells, Kevlar helmets and vests, hand grenades, shotguns, rocket projectiles, chemical warfare suits, and fuel cans. No matter how you look at it, what your opinion of who who did what, who started the fires, should this have even happened in the first place, etc., this was a huge tragedy. Those people didn't need to die at anyone's hands, anyone at all. Before I continue with what the Branch Davidians are doing today, I'd like to invite everybody to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are listed at Music City 911 and join the discussion of the episodes at the Music City 911 podcast discussion group on Facebook. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, consider helping out the podcast by donating at patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com slash Music City 911. Or just look it up, Music City 911 on patreon.com. And if you're on Twitter, go ahead and send us a tweet while you're on here too. Just let us know that you're listening to this episode and we can get into a little discussion about it if you wanted to. So to finish it up, this uh, story actually, in a way, continues actually. The Branch Davidians are still around, only haven't changed their their name to the Branch, the Lord, our righteousness. And currently it has around 1,200 members worldwide. It's led by Charles Pace, who follows the direction that the original Roden family started in the 1970s. Pace sees things a little bit differently than Koresh, but even with that, there are those who believe Koresh had it right. Those who side with Koresh believe that he was in fact a prophet and believe that he will resurrect himself along with those followers that were killed with him. They're apparently back on the same property the original location was, and there are still people stopping by the memorial uh, that was set up for Koresh. One handwritten sign that I saw in a picture uh, by the memorial, it actually says, you will not find David's bones. He is alive. Last episode, we mentioned something from our friends over at Scarlet TCP played their trailer. I'd like to do that again because they really do have a great podcast. They have a lot of different subjects. They have a very strict schedule they keep to, and they're extremely detailed in their podcast. I'd like to go ahead and play their trailer for you again and go on and give them a listen. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Be sure to tell a family member or friend about it if you think they'd like it, and continue listening to us. And until next time, I'm Brandon Hall with Music City 911. Hope you all have a great rest of the night. Hey, podcast fans. We are the ladies of Scarlet TCP. I'm Sonia Mazaleone. And I'm Brittany Sherman. Scarlet TCP is a true crime podcast and member of the Pod All the Time podcast network. Scarlet features the unique and entertaining perspective of a couple of ladies who decided to turn our daily conversations about crime and murder into a podcast. Listen every Monday and every other Wednesday for new true crime episodes and our unique analysis of the cases and topics. Listen to our companion episodes and top threes episodes to hear our take on true crime in entertainment and to learn more about our passions. Follow Scarlet TCP on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast 
and Instagram at scarlet.tcp, and listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, and everywhere podcasts are available. We are the ladies of Scarlet. Keep killing it.